Hello and welcome. I'm David Beard, contributing editor for Daily Coast Elections. My co-host David Neer is under the weather this week, so we wish him the best. But we've got guest host Joe Sudbay back with us. Hey, David. Thanks for inviting me. I'm sorry David Neer is under the weather, but I do always enjoy the opportunity to spend some time on the down ballot. Yes. Well, before we get started, let me say the down ballot is a weekly podcast dedicated to the mini elections that take place below the presidency from Senate to City Council. And also ask that you subscribe to The Down Ballot, if you haven't already, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a five-star rating and review. Um, but let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. Um, we've got a ton to cover this week. Uh, tell us what we're going to be hitting on Weekly Hits. Well, we're going to be talking about actually some pretty big political news that has emerged over the past week. We've got a major candidate for Senate to challenge Ted Cruz in Texas, Colin Allred. We have a retirement in the United States Senate, and that is Ben Cardin from Maryland, which opens up a very competitive primary. Uh, in West Virginia, the seat held by Joe Manchin, a really rough state for Democrats, we know the governor, Jim Justice, has joined the Republican primary. And we had another big retirement announcement, and that's in Washington State. Jay Inslee said he will not be running for a fourth, fourth term. So we'll dig into those. Yeah, so we've got a lot to cover in the weekly hits. And then for our deep dive, we've got Daily Coast Elections editor Jeff Singer back. He's going to be previewing the Virginia state legislative elections that are taking place primaries this June, so in just over a month. And then the general election in November, they're very competitive state legislative chambers. So we'll run through the key seats that will decide control of both of those chambers. So stick with us. Well, we've had a fair amount of news for the end of April, beginning of May of an off year. And we want to start down in Texas where we get a big Senate announcement. So Joe, what's happened there? Well, it's an announcement I think a lot of us have been waiting for a lot with a lot of anticipation, but this week, uh, Congressman Colin Allred, who currently represents Texas House District 32, that's around Dallas, it's in part of Dallas and in the suburbs, he announced that he's going to challenge Ted Cruz next year. And I have to tell you, he did a video, and if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is terrific. It tells the story of his life. And frankly, I thought he just kind of eviscerated Ted Cruz, which of course gives a lot of us joy. He talked about how Cruz rallied the rioters on January 6th and hid in a supply closet, said that he was all hat, no cattle, which I think is a real Texas thing. And oh, yeah. um, and he mentioned that they don't have to, we, you don't have to be embarrassed by your senator. Um, Allred's a pretty formidable candidate, great fundraiser, first one in 2018. He defeated a long-term Republican incumbent. He's a former professional football player, which I think, as I understand it, is a big deal in Texas. Uh, he's a lawyer, worked in the uh, Obama administration. In the last election, 2022, he got over 65% of the vote. Um, you know, this is a, everybody hates Ted Cruz. And, you know, he won in 2018 with 50.8% of the vote against Beto O'Rourke. That's around 215,000 votes. So a lot of attention on this one. You know, there will be a lot of money spent. As I mentioned, Arid's a great fundraiser. You know that the Senate Republicans are going to pour money in to protect Cruz because they know people don't like him. There are two other possible Democratic candidates for the March 5th, 2024 primary. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents the um, area around Uvalde, and then uh, Mayor Sylvester Turner of Houston, who's finishing his term. And just one other thing I think of note about 
uh, Texas and primaries. If no candidate breaks 50% on March 5th, there's a runoff on May 28th. Yeah. And in terms of the primary, I think there's going to be a ton of establishment support rallying around All Red. I think there'll definitely be some pressure for those other candidates to either not run or to drop out to give him a a clear path. Because obviously, Texas is a huge state. I'm confident that he will raise a ton of money, but he will need every bit of it to reach the millions and millions of voters who live in Texas. So I would not be surprised if there's some some movement in that area. Of course, you know, those candidates have absolutely a right to run, but I think they'll they'll struggle with fundraising and establishment support if they do. Looking to the general, yeah, I think this could be very competitive. Democrats, of course, have next to no offensive opportunities in the Senate in 2024. This is really the best one. The only two realistic ones are Texas and Florida. And even though they're they're sort of in a similar area, you know, the past few years, Texas is, if slowly, moving, moving more blue. And Florida, unfortunately, if anything, has been trending more right. Obviously, this past year was a disaster in Florida. So I do think this is probably Democrats' best offensive opportunity. And with the seats we've talked about that Republicans are going to be targeting in you know, West Virginia and Ohio and Montana and others, they really need to put this seat in play. I think Allred is pretty much the best candidate that you could possibly want here. I think he absolutely appeals to the average Texas voter while being you know, sort of acceptable to all groups in the broader Democratic coalition and, and having a lot of connections already in D.C., of course, from being a congressman. And I do think he can give Cruz a race. Obviously, we saw that O'Rourke came pretty close in 2018. You know, there's been further movement slightly, but movement to the left here. The The Trump-Biden race in 2020 was less than six points. That race was close, even though Texas really wasn't, nobody ran ads in Texas. It wasn't really like a competitive state, but it was close um, compared to a lot of other states, it was it was almost five points. So I think there's every chance here that this turns into absolutely a race that we're going to be keeping a very close eye on um, as we get into the the summer and fall of 2024. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, I think Allred is a terrific candidate, and as I said, his his video um, introductory video, which he released this week was so powerful. It told his story, you know, growing up to a single mother and managing to, you know, become a professional football player, become a lawyer. He tells, uh, he's got a great story. And then, like I said, he eviscerates Ted Cruz, which is fairly easy to do. There's a lot of material, but it's good to see that right out of the gate, he's taking on Cruz because that's what he's going to have to do. He's just going to have to do that a lot. Yeah, yeah. I think if you swapped out, you know, John Cornyn, who's the other senator from Texas, that'd be a tougher race because he's a pretty generic Republican. Like, obviously, he's bad on a lot of stuff, but personally, he's just sort of a generic guy, whereas Cruz is particularly loathsome. And you have to take advantage of that if you're going to actually get yourself um, to a victory, to victory in this race. Absolutely right. There was just a lot of kind of news this this past few days on races bumping up. What are the other ones? you're looking at. So another big announcement, this time on the GOP side, was in West Virginia, where Republican Governor Jim Justice announced a run for Senate against, of course, Joe Manchin, though Manchin hasn't officially announced whether or not he's running for a re-election. 
he does seem to be acting like he's running for election. He's done a lot of distancing himself from Biden, you know, voting with the GOP more than he has been. So it's certainly setting himself up to run for re-election, but he hasn't made that announcement yet. Now, Justice first faces a primary from GOP Representative Alex Mooney, who's already gotten into the race. Justice is definitely the establishment favorite, Steve Daines, who's the chair of the NRSC, had some very nice things to say about Justice at um, his announcement. But Mooney is definitely going to have plenty of support as well. The Club for Growth has vowed to spend $10 million on Mooney's behalf. And Mooney is going to be attacking Justice as you know, a secret liberal, as every far-right Republican likes to call all other Republicans. Justice, of course, was originally elected as a Democrat before switching parties as governor. So maybe they could see a little bit more coming from there than they otherwise would. But I do think Justice is probably a pretty strong favorite here. He's pretty popular in West Virginia at this point. He's pretty universally known as the governor. And early polls have shown him with a healthy lead um, against Mooney, in the primary. So of course, you know, $10 million in attack ads in West Virginia goes a long way. So this race is far from over, but I think you'd have to say justice is the favorite. And if we do get a justice mansion race in the general, I think that's going to be very tough for mansion. I think mansion would have better odds against Mooney who he could paint as in somebody who was out of state until recently, who's very much a far right conservative, um, Justice, of course, has his has his foilables, but he's he's not as far right as Mooney. So I think it could be very difficult for Manchin if he does end up having to to face justice in the general. Yeah, I was wondering, um, David, if this is one of those races where we might see Democrats try to, as um, our friend David Neer says, rat fuck the um, Republican primary and do what they can to undermine justice and get Mooney into the race. Of course, <laughs> that would need some cooperation from Joe Manchin, who, like you said, is not being very cooperative with Democrats. And he's an, probably going to wait until next January to announce if he's even running for re-election. And of course, there's all this chatter about him possibly being a no-labels candidate. So really going to be interesting. We have to keep an eye on how Manchin acts over the next few weeks and months. But if I was him, I'd be thinking if I'm running for re-election, I'm going to want some of that DSCC money. So they're only going to, they should only let them go so far with his attacks on Democrats. Yeah, yeah. And of course, this is a situation where you really need something to go right far beyond just running a good race. Mm -hmm. And so maybe getting in there and trying to, to help Mooney get over the edge, just really nuking justice pre-primary in a way that maybe also hurts his favorables going into the general is, is the way to go. The reality is, West Virginia is now one of the most Republican states in the country. The fact that we still hold the seat is all but a miracle. You know, it's obviously been key as, as extremely frustrating as Joe Manchin has been for the past few years. The alternative has been a Republican who would have voted no on everything. And so Manchin being there allowed, you know, the IRA to get passed. It's allowed a number of judges to get confirmed, you know, a lot of other good legislation. So that's been a good benefit, again, as frustrating as Manchin is, and I get as frustrated by him as anybody. But I do think there's every chance, realistically, that that the time is up. You know, obviously, we're going to do everything we can, but it's just a very, very tough state. Very, very tough state. And just 
gotten so much tougher over the years too. It's really amazing. But Joe Manchin's got his work cut out for him. And like I said, it'd be interesting to watch how he deals with the next few weeks and months in the Senate. Because if he does decide to run, he's going to want that money. Now we do have one more big announcement in the Senate. Um, So take us to the nearby state of Maryland, um, where we've got a retirement. Yeah, Senator Ben Cardin is retiring after three terms in the Senate. Um, he he's, he's one of those senators who is more like a policy wonk and a workhorse. You don't usually see him jumping in front of TV cameras. He's kind of been a low-key guy, but you know, very effective in delivering for his state. Uh, He was a member of the House from 1986 till he ran in the Senate primary in 2006 when Senator Sarbanes retired. And I just want to give that context because Senate seats don't come available very often in Maryland. Um, Of note, in that September 2006 primary, Cardin won with 44% of the vote. His nearest competitor was his then fellow member of Congress, Kwese Mfume, who after a 20-year break, is back in the House again. Um, Maryland Republicans have not won a Senate seat in Maryland since the 80s. But they have elected Republican governors over the past few years, including Larry Hogan, whose term concluded in January. Hogan is an anti-Trump Republican who flirted with running for president. No doubt will undoubtedly will be recruited to run for this Senate seat, even though he'd be sort of a pain in the ass for Republicans, but they just want a body. They want the body and they'd love to win this Democratic health seat. On the Democratic side, we can expect a very crowded primary. Like I said, Senate seats don't become open very often in this state. And a lot of names are already being discussed. Will Jawanda, who's a Montgomery County Council member, has already announced he's running for the race. Others whose names keep popping up are David Trone, the congressman from Maryland's 6th District, Prince George's County Executive Angela Alsobrooks, um, John, Johnny O, this guy they call Johnny O, who's John Ozlowski Jr. He's the Baltimore County Executive. And another name that we keep seeing is... Uh, Jamie Raskin, who represents Maryland's 8th Congressional District, a beloved member of Congress who just last week rang the bell uh, in the cancer ward at his hospital because he had finished his chemo treatments, which of course is a factor. He says he's cured, but that's obviously something he has to consider. Um, Of note, both Raskin and Trone ran against each other in a House Democratic primary back in 2016 when Jamie Raskin won uh, the 8th Congressional District uh, primary and then became the member of Congress. So <laughs> I don't know, maybe we'll see a Raskin-Trone rematch in the Senate, but it's it's going to be, there will probably be a lot more names mentioned, but um, this is going to be, the battle should be the Democratic primary in Maryland. Yeah, and I believe I've already seen Hogan say that he's not interested in this, yeah. So, which is what I would expect. He, they've tried for years at this point to get him involved in running for Senate and he has not been interested. I I don't think that he would have much of a chance even if he did run. As we've seen over and over again, governorships and Senate seats, people treat them very differently when they vote and partisanship is much, much stronger when you're voting for a Senator than when you're voting for your governor to do, you know, to be an executive. Absolutely. I do think the, the big 
person who's looming over this is Trone. He's the 17th most wealthy member of Congress. He's going to be willing to spend a lot of money in the primary. And so the question I think there is, is there's going to be some sort of consolidation um, for a candidate um, that can really counteract that money? Because if it's split, you know, 10 ways, if there's 10 candidates getting between like five and 20% of the vote, I wouldn't be surprised to see Trone's money, you know, carry him to victory. Um, and that wouldn't be the worst thing. He's a perfectly fine Democratic member of Congress, but it's never my favorite thing when somebody becomes a senator because they just had a lot of money and the other candidates didn't. Um, I do think there'll be some pressure um, to maybe consolidate around, you know, one of the African-American candidates. Jawando is black. He would be Maryland's first black senator. Maryland has one of the higher percentages of African-American voters in the country. So I think it's a state that absolutely should have a black senator. So, you know, that could be one thing that sort of consolidates be it Jawando or somebody else, they may, there may be a number of other Black candidates running. But I think that's something to watch as well. Yeah, I think that's really important. I, it is, uh, Chris Van Hollen is the other senator, won just a couple of years ago. Um, he's from the seat that um, Jamie Raskin now has. And, you know, that's another dynamic is kind of the Baltimore region versus suburban DC. Um, that's another way to look at how this race is going to play out. And then David Trone actually is from the far suburbs, more of a Western Maryland district. So he's he, he's kind of not really one of those, even though he did run in the eighth district before. So it's going to be a very interesting primary. And like you said, a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of it will probably come from David Trone. Yeah, and as a DC resident who shares the media market, I'm sure I will be seeing many, many ads um, over the next year. So I will, I will try to report back any interesting ones. <laughs> likewise, likewise. What's, what's the other races you're looking at, uh, David? Yeah. So we had one more big piece of news, um, this over on the West coast in Washington state, um, where democratic governor Jay Inslee announced that he would be retiring rather than seeking a, a historic fourth term in office. He will have been governor for, for 12 years by the end of this current term. Now, Republicans haven't won the Washington state governorship um, since John Spellman won in 1980. So this is a very, very long streak of Democratic governors um, that will obviously look to continue um, in 2024. There's two big candidates who everyone has sort of known has been interested for a while. That's Attorney General Bob Ferguson and Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz. Ferguson has already announced and he announced with a lot of establishment support. Um, on his website, he's got endorsements from 16 state senators, 20 state representatives, and four members of Congress, um, most notably um, Pramila Jayapal, who leads the Congressional Progressive Caucus um, in DC. So he's got a lot of heavyweight hitters behind him. Um, on the Republican side, it's still, still very unsettled. It'll be interesting to see if they get like a, a real candidate that they consolidate behind. Because, of course, Washington state uses a top two primary system like we've talked about before. So if there's no Republican, it's possible that you could end up with two Democrats advancing to the general election. But I would expect um, Washington state is very consistently Democratic, but there's a healthy Republican base there. Um, it's not something like Washington, D.C., where there aren't any Republicans. Um, 
so I would expect Republicans to get someone and to consolidate around them. But I, I think whoever advances from the, the top two system, whichever Democrat will probably be be the favorite going into November of next year. Yeah, this this is um, it's going to be interesting. You know, I think there was a lot of question about whether Inslee would go for the fourth term. There was a lot of speculation he might. Uh, he's certainly going out on a high note these past few, this past session, particularly the Democrats have had a great control in the legislature and they've passed some really remarkable legislation. Uh, one of the things I was complete, most moved by is they did protections for abortion rights and trans care. And he signed that bill. And he also signed a number of gun bills, including an assault weapon ban. And it's a, it's quite a good legacy for him to uh, finish up his governorship. Got one more term, obviously, one more legislative session next spring. But it's, um, it's, it's really an impressive way to conclude your uh, term. And we'll see where he may, what future he may have too. Yeah, he did um, run for president for a little while back in 2020 before before dropping out ahead of the primaries. And I was looking back on his history and it was pretty interesting because he first won election to governor in 2012 in a very close race. He only won 52-48 and then each subsequent race has gotten you know a little bit more comfortable. And there was also a period where two rebellious Democrats had given control of the state Senate over to the Republicans because they were sort of conservatives. And so it was really a rocky sort of early period, but you know, in part, of course, thanks to the Trump administration um, sort of radicalizing some Democrats and making a light blue state like Washington say it a little safer for Democrats, you know, getting better control of the legislature for Democrats. They've really been able to do some really impressive stuff like those things that you mentioned. So I do think it's you know, a good a good time to go out if you want to go out on a high. Absolutely. And you remember last fall, we were being told by some of the pundits and prognosticators in D.C. that the Senate race with Patty Murray was going to be close. It wasn't at all. And uh, I think a lot of that had to do with what both Trump and the Dobbs decision and now uh, Democrats in that state are delivering on their promises. It's, it's great. I think it's, it's, it's a terrific legacy for um, Jay Inslee. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure we'll see some, some of those Republican pollsters come back with showing us narrow races <laughs> yes, um, yes. next year, but you know, color, color me suspicious. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Right. Um, so never dull though. Is it David Beard? It's never dull. It, it, it never is. We've, we've got a lot of news this week, considering, considering we're still pretty far away from 2024. Um, but before 2024, we've still got the 2023 elections. Stick with us as we're going to be talking with Daily Coast Elections Editor Jeff Singer. He's back on the pod, and he's going to be previewing the Virginia state legislative elections that are coming up this November. This week, we're joined once again by Daily Coast Elections Editor Jeff Singer, who's going to be previewing the Virginia legislative elections for us. They've got their primary elections in June, so just a few weeks away, and then, of course, the general election this November. Uh, welcome back to the pod, Jeff. Thank you, David. It's great to be back. So why don't we start off by um, having you give us just an overview of where we stand with the Virginia elections and sort of how we got here in the past couple of elections. Yeah, so Virginia famously is one of the few states that holds statewide elections and elections for the legislature in odd-numbered years. And this year, the entire 100-member House of Delegates is up for a new two-year term, and so is the entire 40-member state Senate. They're up for a four-year term. 
Right now, the Democrats hold a 22 to 18 majority in the state Senate. It's the only thing that keeps the Republicans from having complete control of the state government because Governor Glenn Youngkin, who won in 2021, is there and his victory helps the Republicans win a 52 to 48 majority in the state house. So what's at stake is quite a lot. If the status quo holds, then we'll have the division that we've had for the last two years. Republicans will see their bills fail. Democrats won't be able to pass things, but they'll be able to prevent the Republicans from passing anything. If Democrats hold the state Senate and flip the House, puts them in a stronger position. And if the Republicans keep the state House and keep the state Senate, then Youngkin has a lot of leeway to get what he wants in what's become a blue state. And I'll also add there's something new about this year's elections. This is the first time that either chamber will be using the new maps that were drawn up by the state Supreme Court before it was the legislature doing it. And so quite a lot's changed. Some Democrats are in better positions than they used to be. Some are in much worse positions, same with the Republicans. So quite a lot of change. Now, of course, the the Senate and the governorship is never up for election in the same cycle. So now, obviously, Republicans won in 2021 with Glenn Youngkin. Democrats are obviously going to try to take back control of the governorship in 2025. But in order for that to turn into full control of Virginia, they've got to take back and then hold the House um, leading up to that. And then, of course, they have to hold the Senate because whoever holds the Senate is sort of guaranteed control for four years, or at least a a level of influence for the next four years, right? Right. And... In Virginia, there's a lot the legislature can do for appointments, whether the governor signs off on it or not. Republicans for a long time had control of the legislature, even when Democrats had the governorship, and they were able to appoint some conservative Supreme Court justices. So if Democrats have the legislature for another two years, even if Youngkin there puts them in a better position, then they might be in other states. Yeah, these these House races, to me, Jeff, are really so important. I mean, I follow them pretty closely. I mean, I go back to 2017 when... In the not-too-distant past, Republicans controlled this House of Delegates 66 to 34. Change in the 2017 election, uh, Democrats picked up 15 seats, then they took the majority in 2019, lost it again, as you said, in 2021. Some of those races in 2021, and I know we're dealing in new districts now, but they were so close. It was like under 100 votes. And that's one of the things that I think is so important about state legislative races is how close they can be. And the thing about Virginia, because they're like the big game, it will get undue attention this year. Exactly. And Virginia, unfortunately, doesn't have campaign finance rules, which means that if a race suddenly starts to look a little interesting, a lot of money can rush in there very, very quickly. Very quickly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see a number of these races break the million dollar mark in terms of spending. Now we're going to go through a number of the key races that will probably decide control of both of the chambers in November. But first, I just want to briefly touch on a couple of interesting primaries, both on the Democratic side in the Senate. And so we'll start with um, Senate District 13, um, which is quite the showdown. So tell us about that race. Yeah, this is a scene in the Richmond area, and the Democratic incumbent is none other than fighting Joe Morrissey. We could write a whole book on this guy. There is, he has a, I don't know if remarkable is the right word, but he has a famous ability to survive scandal after scandal after scandal. He's up for a new four-year term, but it's not just his 
many, many personal problems that are making him a target. He is unreliable on pretty much everything, including abortion rights. He kept Democrats in suspense on whether he'd vote to greatly restrict abortion. His vote didn't end up needing to matter because Democrats scored a big special election win in January that expanded their majority and made Morrissey no longer the defining vote. But he could be again if he wins renomination and this and Democrats lose ground in November. So progressives really want him to go, and including many of his colleagues. Morrissey's opponent in the primary is former state delegate Loris Aird. This is a safely blue seat. Whoever wins the primary should be fine in the general election. And this is probably going to be the biggest test Morrissey's ever had on whether he can survive everything that he's done. The the other um, seat that's gotten a lot of attention, uh, Senate primary, is uh, Senate District 18 down in Chesapeake and Portsmouth. Talk about that one for a little bit. Yeah, this is the only district in the chamber where there are two incumbents going at it. There are Democratic incumbents, Luis Lucas and Lino Sproul. And this is a safe, another safely boot district. And the ideological divisions aren't at all the same as they are for Morrissey's race, but it's gotten a bit interesting. Lucas is the most senior member of the state Senate. About a week ago, she accused unnamed Northern Virginia leaders of wanting to beat her so that they could get one of their own on her committees. They wouldn't have to deal with her seniority. And she said, quote, there are people working to shut black leaders out of key positions, unquote. Um, I shouldn't mention both candidates are black here, but she's arguing that they want to take down someone as prominent as her so that people who are black could have more power in Northern Virginia. That's what she said. It's been a big thing there. We'll see how it impacts the race. And one of those things you often, I think, see in races like this is when there's not an ideological distinction like there is in that other primary between Morrissey and Aird that we just talked about, things can often get nastier and about very specific little things like this because they don't have as much issue stuff to talk about because these two candidates, they're incumbent Democrats. They probably vote the same way 95 plus percent of the time. And so they end up arguing about who's getting support from Northern Virginia, various Democrats, and why, you know, which gets very messy. Exactly. Those are the big primaries to watch out for. But of course, the thing that we really care about is in November, when both these chambers are going to be up, and there's going to be a bunch of races that are going to determine who controls both of these chambers. Now, since we started with the Senate, talked about some of those primary races, let's just stick with the Senate. Um, for now, and then we'll move on to the House. We've got four races we want to talk about. So why don't you you start us off, Jeff? Yeah, and um, I should say, Democrats, they have 22 out of the 40 seats right now. They can afford to lose exactly one. If there was a 2020 split, then the tie will be broken for the Republicans by the Republican lieutenant governor. She's not up until 2025, Winston Earl Sears. So Democrats really need to pretty much hold their ground. They can lose one seat and... That's it. One of the big races we're watching is in the Richmond area, Senate District 16. It's between Republican incumbent Siobhan Donovan and Democratic delegate Skyler Van Valkenburg. This is a seat that got a bit blue in redistricting, but it was already trending Democratic. Henrico County, outside of Richmond, it's one of those areas that it used to be really, really Republican turf till not too long ago. In 2008, when Barack Obama was becoming the first Democratic presidential candidate to carry Virginia since LBJ in 1964, he was also carrying the former Republican bastion of Henrico County. And then 
A lot of areas in the county were still pretty red until the Trump era. This is one of them. Donovan survived in 2019 under a different map in a still tough district. She's up for a real challenge this time. In her new district, Biden won 55% of the vote in 2020. Terry McAuliffe, even as he was losing statewide, won 52%. So this is really going to test her crossover appeal. What are, what are the other um, Senate uh, districts that are super competitive this fall that we need to keep an eye on? Yeah, so while Donovan saw her district get a lot bluer, Democratic State Senator Monty Mason has the opposite issue. His once safely blue district in Hampton Roads is now a lot more competitive. It's now the 24th district. Used to be very reliably blue, but under the new lines, Biden won 53% of the vote. Glenn Youngkin won 51%. So this is this is exactly the type of battleground that everyone's going to be watching in both houses. These are the types of districts that everyone's going to be watching, the Biden-Youngkin districts. Mason's Republican opponent is a former local sheriff, Danny Diggs. This is going to be one of the big ones. Then there are two open state Senate seats, two Biden-Youngkin districts. One of them is in Southside, Virginia, along the North Carolina border, the 17th district. Biden won 53% here, Youngkin won 52%. The Democrats don't have a primary. Delegate Clint Jenkins is the only candidate. The Republicans do have a primary next month between or another delegate, Republican Emily Brewer, and a former NASCAR driver, Hermie Sadler. Then we go up north to Loudoun County in the 31st district. It's another dis- seat like that. Biden won 56%, but Youngkin got just over half. This time, the dynamics are a bit different. The Republican has no inter-party opposition. He's businessman Juan Pablo Segura. He's the son of a billionaire. And the Democrats have a primary between a local prosecutor, Russett Perry, and a Leesburg Town Council member, Zach Cummings. So there could be other targets to worth, worth watching on both sides. Things can get pretty unpredictable in legislative races, but these are the four districts that at this point look like they're going to decide control. I love how rich people are so everywhere in the Republican Party electorate and running for everything. They're now down to state Senate candidates. <laughs> Our sons of billionaires, it used to be just U.S. Senate candidates were the millionaires and billionaires. <laughs> and now they're just filtering down everywhere. Uh, one one clarifying thing I had. So those last two races that don't have incumbents, SD-17 and SD-31, are they seen as Democratic held seats or Republican held seats right now are because of redistricting or is, they, is there not really a, a party that owns the two seats? Because of redistricting, no one really owns either of these two seats. They really could be just the ones that make all the difference. Hopefully, Democrats will be able to hold on to the Senate seats they need, given that whoever has that chamber, as we mentioned, will hold it for the next four years. So it's pretty important. But of course, the House is also up. The House is up every two years, but that doesn't mean we still don't want to take it back this year, as opposed to waiting for 2025 when the governor's race is up as well. Obviously, with 100 seats, there's a lot more races going on across the state of Virginia. Um, but let's go ahead and start going through some of the key races we want to be keeping an eye on as we head to November. Yeah, so this is another one where the chamber is very close. Again, Republicans have 52 out of the 100 seats. If there's a tie here, though, there's no lieutenant governor to break it. There'd be some sort of power sharing agreement. So things could get very complicated in a hurry if there's a 50-50 split. So some of the seats we're going to be looking at, all these are seats that Biden won and that Youngkin won. So pro-typical battlegrounds. Staying in Northern Virginia in Prince William County, HD 21, Biden won about 60% here. Should look safe, but then Youngkin won about 51%. So we'll find out. 
There's one Democrat Marine veteran, Josh Thomas. The Republicans have a fight between local Board of Supervisors member John Stirrup and Marine veteran Josh Quill. All right, and staying in Prince William County, we have another one, HG22. Not as blue. Biden won a little bit more than half the vote, but Youngkin got 53%. This is another one where there's just one Democratic candidate, Attorney Travis Nembhard, while there's one Republican also, former Manassas City Council member Ian Lovejoy. And so those are two big, big races in Northern Virginia. Let's move down to the center of the state where there's some more races around the Richmond area. Yeah, so back in Henrico County, we have HD 57. It also has a little bit of rural, but very red Goochland County attached to it. So dynamics are a little bit different than the Donovan race, but pretty comparable. It's one where Biden and Youngkin each took about 52% of the vote. And the Republicans have just one candidate, David Owen, while the Democrats have a primary between Susanna Gibson and Bob Shippey. Then we go a bit north to Fredericksburg, HD 65. Biden won 55%, but again, Youngkin got 51%. So quite a lot of swing vote around here. Former Democratic delegate Josh Cole, he's trying to regain a seat in the House. He has the field to himself on the Democratic side. While for the Republicans, they have a primary, but it looks like their main candidate is a captain of the Stafford County Sheriff's Department, Lee Peters. I, I got to interview um, Delegate Cole in 2021 when he was running for election. And that was one of those races that was so, so, so close <laughs> back in uh, 2021. What, what are some of the other races you're keeping an eye on, Jeff? Yeah, so south of Richmond, there's House District 82, Biden won 55%, Youngkin won 51%. This time there's a Republican incumbent, Republican delegate Kim Taylor. While there are two Democrats running, Victor McKenzie and Kimberly Pope Adams. Then in Virginia Beach, we have Republican delegate Karen Greenhall, who's trying to hold the 97th district. Once again, Biden won 55% here, Youngkin won 51%. If you're sensing a pattern, there. Looks like they're very much is fun. <laughs> and there's no primary on either side. Greenhall's Democratic opponent is an Air Force veteran, Michael Biggins. While the map's different, Greenhall went through a very, very close race last time. She unseated a Democratic incumbent. The race went to a recount. In December, we found out that Greenhall won by 115 votes. So very competitive area. Now, obviously, it's still May. It's still early days. Primaries are still happening next month. But do you see how these races are start starting to shape up in terms of issues? What is sort of the key issue that the Democrats and the Republicans look like they're going to be focusing on as they move into a general election campaign? Well, as it usually is, the Republicans want to talk about taxes and crime. Democrats want to talk about abortion rights. And what's Really complicated here is there have been polls. They show Youngkin quite popular. They also show that people don't really like his policies. So that's not an unusual dynamic when there's a governor in charge of a state that politically is a bit different from them, but it's there. So Youngkin probably would bring himself forward to say, I need majorities to do be to do things while he might not be super clear about the exact things he'd like to do. While Democrats probably aren't going to be targeting Youngkin himself, they don't really want, they don't want to make this a referendum on Youngkin. They'd rather be about Trump and other Republicans. So 
we'll we'll see how that goes. I expect abortion rights to come up quite a bit, especially since there almost were anti-abortion policies that might well have passed had Democrat Aaron Rouse not won his special election in January. Um, I should I should mention with him, his seat got quite a bit more Democratic under the new map. Still worth watching, but it shouldn't be the cliffhanger it was in January. Yeah, there. Senate Democrats really were the um, the wall against trying to undo all of the progressive policies that had passed in the previous session when there was a Democratic trifecta. You really get the sense. Virginia is a classic example of what can happen when there's a Democratic trifecta and what Republicans will try to do when they get theirs. And clearly some really important issues, abortion, LGBTQ rights, legalized marijuana, voting. I mean, we saw Cleta Mitchell, who was Trump's lawyer, um, one of the coup plotters, giving a speech to the RNC specifically targeting Virginia as a way to undermine, as a place where they can undermine voting rights if they take back the state Senate in November. Yeah, exactly. This Virginia often does get overshadowed in the year before presidential races by races in Louisiana, Kentucky. They're, they're going to be important. I, I will be the first person to say the race in Louisiana for governor is very important, but Virginia has quite a lot going on here. And it could only take a few votes in a few districts to make all the difference between whether Republicans have complete control of the state government in a place that really has been trending the other way for a long time, or if Democrats can stand up and be the bastion that they've been for the last two years. Well, this is definitely a number of races that we'll continue to keep an eye on, both for the primary in June and then as we move into the fall. Um, Jeff, thank you for joining us. In case anyone who's listening to the pod is not following you on Twitter, where can they find you on Twitter? So I often tweet from our Daily Coast Elections account, DK Elections. You can find me personally at Darth Jeff 90. That's an account I came up with, I think, in high school. I <laughs> did not think I'd be using it professionally now, but Darth Jeff 90. Well, that that's what social media does to us. So yeah, everyone give Jeff a follow on Twitter. Uh, thank you once again for joining us. Thank you, Beard. And as Darth Jeff 90, may the fourth be with you. <laughs> <laughs> That's all from us this week. Thanks to Jeff Singer for joining us and for Joe Sudbay for joining in as guest host. The Down Ballot comes out every Thursday, everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can reach out to us by emailing thedownballot at dailycoast.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe to The Down Ballot on Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and review. Thanks to our producer, Walter Einenkel and editor Trevor Jones. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Mm-hmm.